0: Welcome back to the New Books and Sports Podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and our guest today is Howard Rosenberg, author of Ty Cobb Unleashed, the Definitive Count of the Chastened Racist. Howard, thanks for being with us today. You're
1: very much welcome, Bob.
0: Howard is the author of a very thorough and detailed four-volume set about Cap Anson, Mike Kelly, and 19th century baseball. Um, Howard, give the listener a little bit of background about yourself and your education and, and your interest in sports and history. Well, oh,
1: thank you for the question, Bob. Um, I, uh, am a journalist by trade. I, uh, started out in Washington, D.C. right after college as a reporter for, uh, Jewish newspapers and got to cover, you know, the back and forth of Washington, uh, both sides of a story. And I uh, had to be fair to Democrats, Republicans, uh, and even on pro-Israel issues, uh, to be, uh, fair to all the different Jewish groups and, uh, have a sense of, you know, getting everybody's, uh, Point of view, and if you could, uh, although to a point. And then I ended up uh, moving over to a Native American think tank and uh, wrote about uh, or edited things related to Native Americans and opened my eyes a lot more to editing. Uh, it's a thankless job. And then I um, branched out. I took a job that was uh, relatively easy and uh, ended up with a lot of free time and went to the Library of Congress, uh, started going there to see if I could find a subject related to baseball history that would interest me. I was attracted uh, initially by uh, the notion of writing about first basemen. I liked playing first base, even though I'm relatively small uh, growing up. And uh, I figured uh, the first basemen were kind of uh, stereotyped as uh, lumbering, you know, people who just didn't do much uh, uh, as fielders and hit pretty well. And I started researching 19th century for some reason. I thought that 19th century... I'm sorry. I started in 1901 moving into the 20th century. And as I moved into the 20th century, it got relatively boring, uh, baseball writing. Some people like 20th century baseball writing. I thought it was very, uh, stale, um, to a certain degree as it went on. So I moved back to 1900 and, uh, went back toward, uh, the start of baseball in 1871 and boom, in 1898, I ran into a player named Cap Anson, who became the first player to have 3000 hits. He, uh, Turns out to have been a the giant uh, baseball player of the 19th century, as far as drawing funny coverage, uh, humorous coverage, uh, criticism, roasts that were you know quite well taken. Uh, the start of baseball history, uh, there was no real rules for how baseball was going to be covered. The writers basically had a field day making a little comments about the players, their personalities. Uh, as you may know, Bob uh, Cap Anson was uh, gruff and uh, quite talkative in a uh, negative way toward his players, a bit of disciplinarian, but um, quite colorful, and uh, he was captured very well by reporters. And then I branched out. uh, My first book was about the role of the captain versus the manager. He actually held both roles, and a lot of teams had divided management, so uh, it was quite a clash of who was in control, off the field, the manager was, believe it or not, and on the field, the captain was. The captain was more of a leader for uh, running the team during the game. And then um, my second book ended up branching out to a longtime teammate of Anson's named Mike King Kelly, who uh, was really the Babe Ruth of the 19th century as far as being uh, colorfully uh, entertaining. He uh, was the most popular player in Boston baseball history, uh, into, like personally popular, uh, into the 1950s based on a book by Harold Kesey, uh the history of the Boston Braves, who he played for the National League team after playing for Chicago. Uh, so I did that now he's a book on uh, these are all books with Cap Anson in the title Cap Anson 1, 2, 3, and 4 the third book was a book on tricky and dirty play it's the definitive book on anything that went on in century baseball uh, on certain topics like cutting third base or second base second, cutting second base or third base when the umpire wasn't looking usually a one umpire uh, hidden ball tricks uh, playing around with the ball. There was a lot of stories about manipulating the ball to uh, for the pitcher on the mound to make, get advantages over the runners. And it was also the, the definitive book on the 1890s Baltimore Orioles who were a uh, tricky and dirty team. Uh, John McGraw, Yumi Jennings, uh, Willie Keeler, although Willie Keeler was more of a hit-them-where-they-ain't type of person, but um, all types of trickery on the field. And then um, I compared Chicago, by the way, in that book, uh, for its tricky and dirty play in that era uh, as a comparison point for Baltimore. So I, th- I threw in Cap Anson into that book. Uh, he he was a captain manager of the Chicago team for 19 years in the 19th century. So that's really where uh, the uh, Cap Anson uh, is, is such a giant figure. 19 straight years with the same team as a captain manager is uh, quite a feat. And then um, my fourth book was really the definitive biography of Anson himself, except for everything that was in my other books about Anson, especially, uh, I guess, his birth, his death, his long post-career. He was one of the more interesting post-career players uh, of baseball history. He was like City, city Clerk of Chicago. He opened, his up, opened, his up, opened up his own pool and billiards hall, and uh, that was his lifelong dream. And he uh, went on vaudeville tour after going bankrupt with uh, Judge Landis, the future commissioner of baseball, serving as, his, uh, I guess, his, uh, the judge in his bankruptcy proceedings. He did 10 years of vaudeville, and ended up telling stories uh, with skits. George M. Cohan wrote material. Ring Lardner Sr. wrote material. And then he uh, ended up uh, with his little uh, golf, um, uh, I guess, uh, job. And he died right around his 70th birthday. So uh, And Anson was a player most often blamed for the drawing of the color line of baseball. Uh, as people know, Jackie Robinson played in uh, 1947. Uh, but there were blacks, a couple blacks in the ninth century. And Cap Anson is considered the player who uh, most often... Uh, is the blame for the drawing of the color line, but it's uh, some, a very speculative case. And then, uh, yeah, so I ended up doing that. That was 2003 to 2006. Uh, and then I didn't really uh, do anything with uh, the baseball history until uh, about two years ago. And uh, I, I stumbled into that because I was writing a, uh, a, a web feature on Cap Anson and the color line, uh, bringing in some argumentation, which I had not been aware of previously when I did my research for my book, And I published it on uh, Donald Trump's uh, 70th birthday on a website called the activist or Ativist A-T-A-V-I-S-T. If you search Howard Rosenberg, activist, Cap Anson, you'll find it. And after doing that article, I realized uh, that there was angles related to Ty Cobb that were coming out. Uh, Rolling Stone had done a story about um, KKK members who were in baseball or members of the Baseball Hall of Fame who had a KKK connection, Cook's Klux Klan. There was Cap Anson in the article. There was Ty Cobb, a few other people. And at one point, Rolling Stone corrected the article to take out Ty Cobb, but they kept Cap Anson in. So when that happened, I was made jealous and ended up doing more research on Ty Cobb. And that's how I ended up flying into Ty Cobb.
0: Well, okay, let's talk about Ty Cobb. Uh, first of all, define what you um, call a uh, counterbiography. Okay, a counterbiography is a word that I made up. Uh, when I looked, by the way, after
1: publishing my book in uh, the British National Library catalog and the Library of Congress catalog, I couldn't find a counterbiography. Uh, to me, a counterbiography is a book that goes against the grain, that uh, is not necessarily a cradle to grave book, but it's, it's a book that contains biographical material that covers uh, essentially a, a person's lifetime. And in the case of Cobb, there were a chain of books that preceded mine. Uh, I can read them off here. John McCollum in 1956, Cobb and his co-author Al Stump in 1961. Uh, McCollum again, 1975, Charles Alexander in 1984, Richard Bach in 1994, Al Stump again in 1994, Dan Holmes in 2004, Don Rhodes in 2008, Charles Learson in 2015, Tim Hornbaker in 2015. Stephen Tripp in 2016, they all each had positives and negatives. And the big negative uh, that ran through all of them, uh, although Alexander did the best of the jobs, I think, was the post-career of Cobb. That uh, Cobb wasn't just a hero on the diamond making feats that caused him to be the player to be first elected to the Hall of Fame in 1936, even more votes than Babe Ruth. Um, but he was really a uh, figure that kept his name in the, in, the, in the limelight in his post career in newspapers and it turns out by writing lots of letters and i'm the first uh biographer to uh, plow through the 1929 to 1961 period 32 years of his life 32 years of his life uh in which he wrote uh hundreds of letters many of which survived i think i cite about 150 of them in my book um although a lot of those are from his um or to, to and from his uh financial advisor sitting in the uh University of California, Berkeley library. And, uh, the newspaper coverage was really not mined. Uh, as, uh, some of your listeners may know, there's a new book by Jane Levy about Babe Ruth. And she was able to mine stuff in these uh, newspaper databases that other, uh, Babe Ruth authors had really not touched, including way Monfill, who did his uh, really quite uh, readable book uh, as a cradle to grave book. It's probably the best one, 2006, but even he had not had a chance to look at a lot of these databases. So, I was able to clean up on what other authors missed, especially emphasizing what was said about Cobb or by Cobb after his retirement, and you got some really good retrospectives uh, that uh, kind of put the picture into a better view. Well, what
0: do you think is the um, the full rounded? What do you think is the full rounded picture about Ty Cobb uh, in his post in his post baseball career? What makes that so fascinating to you and, and perhaps to the readers?
1: Oh, I am a uh, from and Bob, you've seen my books from the 90s century. You've seen some of them. I love tracking what reporters say, and I like to quote reporters by name. I like to make them almost the center of the story as opposed to just writing, like, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Post-Dispatch said this or that. I say uh, so-and-so from a Bob Rogue from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch said that. So I like to follow what reporters are saying in different years about the same person. I did it with Cap Anson, Mike Kinkelly Kelly on uh, thinner subjects with uh, the Tricky Dirty Play so uh, it turned out there were writers who covered Cobb going back to 1907. Uh, they were featured actually in both uh, the Charles Larson and Tim Hornbaker books, which were the 2015 uh, Ty Cobb books that were uh, the basis for my um, jumping in. They each had their strengths and weaknesses, and I tried to reconcile them in various ways. That was my hook. And they each had cited reporters from 1907 uh, or that early period. One of them was Malcolm Bingay who ends up writing about Cobb until 1952 or 53 when he passes away. Uh, so you have a um, continuity of somebody who covered Cobb over 45 years. Another reporter, Harry Salsinger, uh, was most associated with the uh, Detroit News. And he uh, started at 1909. And he's writing stuff until, until 1958. And there's a few fri- private letters from Cobb to Harry Salsinger that do survive. So being able to see what reporters have to say about the subject gives you an independent uh, baseline for figuring out well, what's really uh, fair uh, to say positively or negatively. And as your listeners may know, Cobb is considered one of the most hated baseball players of all time, if not the most hated. So there's a lot of stuff that's been said about Cobb that's true, untrue. Salsinger was of, very much of a defender of Cobb. Uh, he wrote a serial in 1924 for uh, the Detroit News, in which he really you know presented a uh, pro Cobb point of view. And in his columns, took on a pro Cobb point of view. Uh, other writers were more negative, and uh, you could f- pretty much uh, get a sense of um, their interactions with Cobb. Uh, a lot of them, not a lot of them, but a few of them got letters from Cobb directly, and, and a few of them actually put in their newspaper, including Bill Cunningham of the Boston Herald, some of the wording from letters they got from Cobb, and it's quite uh, telling. Uh, just the back and forth. of uh, it's, So it's not just a stenographer, a reporter, you know, in a, in a city getting uh, information from Cobb, you have all these reporters who have their own stories, interactions with Cobb. Cobb, for example, people uh, might say that based on the, the Charles Learson book, which we really haven't talked about. It's the it's a revisionist pro Cobb book, a very well readable book, uh, but as far as being pro Cobb, it's it's over the top. So uh, reporters uh, reported different things that would say that, for example, Cobb uh, really was. Uh, not so much the uh, the grand old man of baseball in his retirement. No, in his retirement, uh, M- Milton Ro- Gro- Gross of the New York Post was saying that he every time he saw Cobb, Cobb was complaining about his, his, how reporters were maligning his legacy. Uh, and the reporter was so negative about Cobb that he said, you know, cancer is a terrible way to go. Uh, but, you know, with Cobb, it's, you know, it's a, you know, he's sorry to say it, but you know, he doesn't miss Cobb or or it was kind of a negative comment, but just the notion that Cobb had a lot in him pent up from a year, from 24 years of, you know, scrapping on the diamond. He was a, a very, uh, I guess, competitive, super competitive, hyper competitive baseball player and had made some enemies. And in his retirement, he had, uh, he suddenly had stopped doing anything related to baseball. Uh, He basically ended up moving to California soon after from Georgia but he kept up uh, public appearances, was available to reporters, uh, contested his legacy as a spiker. Uh, that was a uh, big uh, negative aspect of him that uh, he couldn't never shake, no matter how many uh, letters he wrote, no matter how many interviews he had. He was always known as a spiker, and he hated that image. And he tried to overcome it by, um, I guess, doing ph- philanthropic things after uh, World War II. He tried to, or he did, uh, give a lot of money to... In Dawa Hospital, in his hometown of Royston, Georgia, a very small town, and uh, he ends up creating a scholarship fund. But he really never was able to dog the negativity of being a uh, overly competitive player who really was disliked by his fellow players, who was considered mean, like a mean person to be around. Uh, just you know, not uh, you know friendly, and uh, so in a way, so Cobb's retirement is 30, thirty-two years of trying to restore his image to various degrees he succeeded and i guess i could jump into the next question which would be well what happened after his death that threw everything into a new curve even though he had been able to tamp down some of the negativity his uh, co-author of the 1961 book al stump comes along and writes a very negative article three months after his death or four months after his death in 1961 for a publication called true the man's magazine and it ends up uh, really setting back Cobb uh, uh, to quite a degree. And uh, to cut a long story short, uh, it leads to a the 1994 movie Cobb starring Tommy Lee Jones. Out stump is still around. He passes away in 1995, and he writes helps write the screenplay for that movie. And it's way over the top, negative about Cobb. Uh, and uh, it really um, and then the, the books in 2015 by Charles Larson and Tim Hornbaker come along and helped to uh, restore Cobb's image to some degree. Uh, But one book, the Lyrson book, was too positive. The Hornbaker book really didn't try to refute much, and that's where I came along and used a lot of this newspaper reporting that uh, both of them had missed and that other Cobb authors had missed to uh, clear the air on what could be said negatively about Cobb and to some degree positively that other authors had missed.
0: Well, what I like about your book is that... um... And most, most biographers do this, write about a subject. They, they approach it from how how we are today, you know, in the 21st century. This is how we look at Ty Cobb. But what you did was you took a look at Ty Cobb as he was portrayed during his, during his career and, and mo- more specifically during his retirement years. And I think that provides a unique perspective.
1: Yeah, I think the uh, playing career is where I was able to uh, cut corners because uh, that had been mined very well. Except that, uh, for example, I, I can say that I found examples of Cobb filing his spikes uh, more so in the 1920s than the 1910s. Uh, it's a question of whether, as an older player, uh, you know, he needed the extra edge. Uh, so the story is that you know, the question of whether he purposely spiked people is considered a um, hard to prove more than a few times on purpose. You know, he was he had a funny or weird way of, of sliding that would intimidate the fielder to help him uh, be safe. But clearly, he's filing his spikes openly. In certain examples, I cite you know six or seven examples. Some of those are decades later or years later reports, but from a range of people, including Bat Boys. Um, I guess uh, Bat Boys were the big ones, but Joe Judge, the Washington senator's uh, longtime first baseman, had a very uh, clear story about Cobb trying to intimidate him by uh, sharpening spikes in his presence. So I really didn't do much about the playing career, but uh, the post-career did uh, touch back a bit on racial incidents, Um, for example, uh, you know, the, which which we haven't talked about, uh, the notion that Cobb was a racist. Now, uh, the Al Stump book came over the top and said he was a violent racist. And, um, the Charles Wilson book has done a very, very good job of dispelling that notion, uh, based on some other research that were done by some other authors and articles, um, before him. And, uh, so what was left though, was whether Cobb was still a racist. And in 1911, it turns out that Cobb was playing a very uh, mean-spirited, you would say uh, amusement park game. You would never think of amusement park game as being mean-spirited, but it's called African Dodger. It's throwing a ball at a live black person who's willing to be paid for money uh, to uh, have balls thrown at him. Uh, the balls were either tennis balls or baseballs. Uh, and it was like the game that you find in Carnival today where you throw the ball at a target and uh, you hit the target and the person's dunked into the water. Um, by contrast, Babe Ruth played the game in the 1933 World's, World's Fair, and he threw the ball at a target to knock the black man in, so you could see that uh, the game had progressed uh, from 1911 to 1933. Well, I'm the first Cobb author to have found that Cobb was throwing a baseball at a black person in, in an amusement park game. It was at Glen Echo amusement park, uh, which was very well-known right outside of Washington, D.C., and it was in, in, in the next-day newspaper report. And it wasn't just me who found it first. It's a Ferris State University, which is a historically black college, I guess, in Michigan, had it on the website. So I ended up finding it. It was available to the 2015 authors. Neither one found it, which is interesting. So it was really a key point of my book to bring in the point that Cobb, uh, clearly there's so much racially going on. And to jump to a different part of the racial subject, I found in 1946, a major columnist of the day, the, the highest-paid sports writer of the day, named Bill Cunningham of the Boston Herald, having recalled having overheard Cobb three years earlier, or a few years earlier, saying what he would do with blacks on the uh, in a social setting if he you know, had a chance, he would take instructions from them if he thought they knew more than he did. Um, he would, uh, you know, have a smoke with them, share a smoke with them, but. He would not play on the dime with them because when you do, you are putting the black man on the same level as you are. And that's the one area where the southerner will draw the line. So I found it's a major, major uh, reassessment quote for Cobb to say that Cobb was not so racially um, liberal for his day as the uh, Charles Lewison book says. But he wasn't much different from other southerners of the day. Of his age, people might think of Enos Slaughter, who was opposed to uh, Jackie Robinson's presence in baseball in 1947. He ended up uh, uh, backing down about the negativity. But you could imagine that Cobb might, if he had been a major leaguer in 1947, he might have, uh, on principle, been against uh, playing against the black man. But he ends up lightening up very much in 1952 in two uh, articles that uh, uh, one was a long interview with with the Associated Press. The other was with uh, the Sporting News. He's clearly for integration, but by 1952, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, So this was a misleading aspect of the Charles Lielsen book that made it sound like Cobb was such a liberal person on integration. 1952 was very relatively late. However, in in Cobb's defense, the Texas League was still uh, the last uh, bastion, pretty much, of of segregation in baseball as of that time. And Cobb did speak in favor of the integration of the Texas League. So he does uh, get some kudos for, for 1952 for that. I also found Cobb uh, doing uh, – or not sh- showing any uh, a- 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 opposition to performing in a minstrel act in 1912 or so. He was very friendly with uh, some guys, with George George Evans, a guy who uh, was a Honey Boy minstrel uh, head. Honey Boy minstrel is a very well-known act of the day. And Cobb was offered a chance to be a minstrel in the offseason, and he declined, saying my wife wouldn't, won't let me. Uh, but he really didn't uh, – tra- disassociate himself from the offer otherwise and i loosely say that that could be considered a sign that he uh was open to minstrelsy uh so uh yeah so those are the three things that i found on the racial front that were quite interesting the african dodger uh the notion that he was opposed to integration theoretically as 1943 or so 42 when this guy bill cunningham overheard him and then not coming out strong against minstrelsy so uh, he wasn't such uh, progressive of his day. Uh, the, the, Mr. Learson's book says that, uh, citing ancestors of Cobb as being an abolitionist, Cobb's father speaking out against lynching, um, but you really it turns out you really can't carry it down to the next generation. So that's a key point in my book that drives home uh, the edge of what you might call revisionism when you knock out part of something as being uh, unsubstantiated The notion that Cobb is a violent racist, except, as I say, the the African Dodger throwing a ball at a a black man in 1911, some people consider that uh, violent. And uh, as uh, many of your listeners may know, Grantland Rice is a very famous sports writer from the early 20th century. He was considered just about the most famous. He has a, in his book in 1954, this and The Shouting, says that he considered Cobb in those early years, early 1900s, actually Cobb started playing in 1905, 1907, period to 1910, roughly, as a violent uh, person. So uh, the notion that he was throwing a, a ball at a black man in a music park game uh, might be considered an example of being
0: violent. Well, since you um, referenced uh, the works of Charles Leerson and uh, Tim Hornbaker in particular, and, and to a lesser extent Stephen Tripp, um, tell us what you think are the strengths and the weaknesses in each book. You mentioned it in your book, and uh, just give it the synopsis. Of there, uh, there are good points and bad points in your view. Okay, I should first mention the names of these books
1: uh, so that pe- people can look for them online. Charles Learson, it's uh, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. Uh, Tim Hornbaker, it's War on the Bathe's Pass: the definitive biography of Ty Cobb. And then the Stephen Tripp book is uh, Ty Cobb and Manhood. And I don't have the full title, but uh, the word manhood will help you find the book. Uh, Mr. Learson and Mr. Hornbaker's books came out about the same time. Uh, Mr. Learson's uh, did a great job of making his book relatively readable if you can get around the notion that, uh, as the Sport History Review Professor Witherspoon uh, wrote, a Sport History Review being a peer reviewed scholarly journal wrote, that uh, the book contains, quote unquote, is smattered with first person intrusions, reminding the reader that it is Learson who is spearheading this process of discovery. So, this book is a kind of a um, Livingston, uh, uh, I guess. L- l- uh, Livingston and uh, who, are, who are the uh, uh, explorers? Uh, Lewis and Clark or Livingston, Stanley Livingston. Uh, it's him making the discoveries and it has a certain, it's like a little shtick. So it has appeal. It could easily appeal to a reader who otherwise would not be attracted to a book because this authors coming out on your side, he's saying that all these people have done things wrong, especially Al Stump, and Al Stump did many things wrong. And it, it makes the book somewhat readable or very readable to a certain degree. But um, it's uh, over-the-top pro-cob, but you, you don't really know it until you might read my book if you or see my book. Uh, so it has an appeal for people who would otherwise not read a book about Ty Cobb. And you learn history that way by people who are more readable. I am clearly much less readable, so my book is only for a certain uh, segment of the population. Um, so the Tim Hornbaker book right. – I, 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 sorry. Let
0: me stop here for a second. Um, Learson, I think you write in your book that he that he wrote like an entertainer. Is that necessarily a bad thing, considering what yeah. so basically audience I'm acknowledging he's been
1: that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm acknowledging right there that uh, it has value and it did sell relatively well, although I do argue that it got a way too favorable start in life, including by Kirkus Reviews, which is not that well known among the average person, but it's the premier early on, First line reviewer of books, especially for bookstore owners who have to figure out whether to put stuff in the bookstores. It credited the Learson book with having accounted for all the uh, newspaper coverage of Cobb. So, and then it said, so how come, so why not give Mr. Learson the benefit of that if he has accounted for all the sources? It's a stunning praise that has no bearing in the truth because the Learson book just uh, skipped over the vast gobs of his post-career. And then it went into criticizing Al Stump for his writing after 1961 for ruining Cobb's legacy. Cobb's legacy. I found so much stuff in the 29th, to nineteen sixty one period that uh, substantiates points by Al Stump, including by someone who's actually in the news uh, this week on a sad uh, occasion. Uh, Ralph McGill is a Pulitzer prize winning, former sports writer turned executive editor of the Atlanta journal constitution in 1958, he ends up uh, writing about a synagogue, synagogue, bombing in Atlanta wins the Pulitzer prize. He was a sports writer who covered Cobb for uh, in positive and negative ways from Atlanta, uh, especially in the 1940s, 1950s. And some of the stories that uh, Al Stump has, for example, Cobb kicking his bird dog when uh, uh, he was mad. Cobb was mad that the bird dog didn't follow his instructions. Uh, he got that. Uh, Stump got that from uh, Mr. McGill. He also got uh, that Cobb had uh, brought his gun into uh, the hospital where he he did his final, um, I guess, uh, term of life in 1961. He was very ill. Uh, The story about his a gun, Ralph McGill got, uh, he reported it. uh, And by the way, the same day that J.G. Taylor Spink, the publisher of the Sporting News, was uh, telling that story to Jack Murphy of the San Diego Union. Uh, The story appeared the same day, on Cobb's death in the San Diego union and for mouth McGill in the Atlanta journal, uh, constitution or journal, Atlanta journal or a few days later. Yeah. Basically uh stories that Cobb had a gun. That's a sign of a person, you know? Uh, and then the question is whether he had, uh, cash and money within the bag of money. I think that was part of the story also, but the gun was definitely part of McGill's reporting. So, uh, there's just so much to say about reviews that, uh, give somebody the benefit of the doubt, especially with Mr. Learson's first book. He's, he's written, you know, well-acclaimed books on horse racing on, on a horse, uh, for example, but it was giving the benefit of the doubt. School library journal recommended it to, uh, high school students to read as a masterful book and how to write a biography. Cause Mr. Larson takes all the uh, information into account. That's what reviewer Mark flower said. And then he, uh, he said, he doesn't really regurgitate. He shows the reader where he's coming down But as it turns out, he missed so much stuff that is actually an example of going over the line to what, yeah, you might say for creative writing, it has a lot of of benefit to it. Uh, Mr. Lewis's writing has a lot of vivacity to it, verve. You definitely would want to show it to people for creative writing. But I say in my book that journalism professors might give it a very bad grade. First of all, uh, a lot of the quotations – have errors in the quotations and then just taking credit for the work of others implicitly or explicitly uh, it's, it's a, it's almost like the book is an exercise in how not to write a book to tell high school students who might in the age of the internet be much more likely to take shortcuts in not attributing material uh, directly. So the Larson book has not been touched really. uh, And it'll be interesting because when my book comes up for consideration for awards, uh, especially baseball book awards, Mister Learson's book won the Saber Social Society for American Baseball Research one of its uh, baseball research awards in 2015 uh, or the 2015 cycle. What will happen when my book comes out uh, for consideration? Which is you know correcting Cobb books left and right. It's actually the last you know it's the definitive word on what can be said about Cobb about his persona and during, during the post career. So, uh, but Mister Lirson's book does perform a public service because it does correct uh, the violent racism part, and it presents the Cobb story in a way that does appeal to lots of people who otherwise would not read a book on Cobb. So as an educational thing, all books pretty much have redeeming value, even the Al Stump book. It it gives you a sense, it appeals to a lot of people, who would never read a book on Cobb. Now, some people have claimed that, I think the New York Times gave it a great rating in 1994, the 1994 uh, Stump book uh, as uh, one of the great basal reads of all time. Uh, you know, But that's uh, before you know if a, story, if a book is true or not. And this is, this is a problem with book reviewing. Book reviewers have a thankless task of trying to figure out when they're reading a book whether it's true or not based on the author's sources. And Al Stump didn't have footnotes. Uh, Mr. Learson only had uh, what you call the chapter essays. He, he was able to pick out what he or his publisher decided was useful for the reviewer to see. Or the uh, you know the amateur historian like me who came to see his book and I ended up uh, fact checking it you know in a stunning way to figure out what he was missing and it's like wow if you're gonna put a book that's so revisionist you really want to put full endnotes so um, so that's my big uh, civic uh, suggestion for publishers that if you're gonna try to change history so dramatically you really want to put full endnotes in your book um, so uh, that's Mister Learson's book Mister Hornbaker's book is very uh, inferiorly known uh, among the baseball uh, public because it just didn't really sell well or wasn't publicized as much. It, did, it was written in a very relatively dry style. Uh, it may be that Mr. Hornbaker knew that Mr. Learson's book was coming out. So it was written in a, uh, what you might call a, a style aimed at not making errors. It's almost like if you read a newspaper story, uh, reporters, for newspapers, have to master the art of not making errors, uh, almost avoiding uh, the spectacular. Uh, Obviously, you have tabloid writers who try to be spectacular, but in general, the average newspaper reporter really has to avoid making errors at all costs. And Mr. Hornbaker's book is an exercise to almost to the extreme that Mr. Learson's book is an exercise in self-promotion of his own mission of capturing the truth. Mr. Hornbaker is almost like... um, way back uh, almost to a fault uh, and making his book a bit hard to read for the average person, but it's masterfully hedged. I say, I think that Mr. Hornbaker uh, could write for the New York times. Whereas Mr. Learson could not write for the New York times in his style of his writing of his book, because he just didn't attribute uh, enough. Uh, He took the credit and newspaper writers cannot take credit for uh, other people's research implicitly, explicitly. It's just a no, no. And Mr. Hornbaker attributed all over the place to a fault. You may, you may find that boring, but it's a heck of a way to write a book. That You would get a good grade from a journalism professor. You might get a bad grade from a creative writing professor. You have It's a remarkable thing here. How many books on famous people in history have been written in the same year where the authors came out on to- in totally different approaches? And, of course, they had some different views on the racism. Mr. Hornbaker being uh, actually – much, much more uh, balanced in capturing. Yes, he caught the overreach of the violent racism. He had the same corrections that Mr. Learson did, except that he didn't really make a big deal about it. He stuck one of them in even his endnotes. But Mr. Learson was trying to go on a, uh, you know, uh, like a, an evangelist for Cobb. And that really has a, like a redemption that was part of one of his words as part of his tour. Mr. Hornbecker really didn't do any uh, promotion. Uh, much, but his uh, was and is a uh, actually the best Cobb book to date as far as a cradle-to-grade book that's an exercise in just not making errors or colossal errors. It's like for your fans of uh, college football who know that the Ohio State football team was was punished mightily for losing to uh, Iowa uh, in the 2017 a cycle, 55 to 21, they uh, BCS committee held that against them, and they kept them out of the top four. So Mr. Learson's book has elements that are similar to Ohio State losing to Iowa, 55-21. to 21. Mr. Hornbaker does not have that. Mr. Hornbaker does not have the highs of Mr. Learson's book. So uh, it's an amazing thing to have uh, fallen upon this uh, uh, you know, competition, these two books, that no one had really brought together except uh, the School Library Journal, which uh, called the um, Hornbaker book Dry as Dust and said the Learson book was a masterful guide for high school students to follow, but it got, but the school library journal reviewer got, got it wrong. Mr. Lirson's book is not a model for high school students. It can be read by everybody else. And Mr. Hormaker's book was dry as dust, but it's a model for journalism students.
0: And talk about Stephen Tripp. He took it, he took it from a different angle, being a college professor as he is. And he looked at the social aspect and the manhood of, of you know, the Southern Southern pride and, you know, how you had to, act in a certain in a certain type of sort of exemplified that
1: oh i love the question this is a great um question because Stephen tripp has it everything wide open to him he's got the learson book he's got the hornbaker book he's got everything before so he's he precedes me in 2016 with uh his take and his take uh is uh, critical of learson but he didn't hack, catch the african dodger he didn't catch the uh, bill cunningham segregation quotes, and he didn't catch the minstrelsy thing, uh, which is lesser but still a sign that Cobb was not a uh, per, per, uh, a liberal person on on race anywhere near as Mr. Larson presented. Now, the amazing thing about Mr. Tripp, professor Tripp is he's very opinionated for a professor. And a reviewer, a couple of reviewers noted that David Welke for the Journal of Sport History and, and a reviewer... A professor who people may know, Randy Roberts, he's written a lot of popular and uh, uh, academic uh, nonfiction sports, including about Jack Johnson, the boxer. Uh, he also noted that, uh, the, uh, that Mr. Professor Tripp's book was, uh, he was getting a, a, a way ahead of the facts in some cases. So Professor Tripp had a, it's, it's a problem of scholarly books for people who aren't scholars. Scholars like to do synthesis. They have certain ways of writing that try to bring things together to cite almost to a fault prior books because they're trying to show where it fits in the continuum and professor Tripp masterfully has all the footnotes he's got it all going uh but he gets ahead of the facts and um the thing i go after him on was he talks about Cobb lying about things and he's saying that's a southern thing and gee i know cab anson had lied about things about his youth i i, I didn't say that had to do with growing up in, in Iowa or something. I just, you know, it just seems to be like forcing the issue. So Professor Tripp did do things very, very well that scholars like. And uh, scholars have a certain way of looking at a book and they say, oh, this is synthesis. This is high analysis, uh, citing, bringing together other uh, theories from other uh, authors, you know, the, the literature. This is a literature study. The Larson book is not a literature study. The Hornbaker book is not a literature study, uh, although the Hornbaker book did cover far more newspaper sources than the Larson book, even though the Lyrson book was credited by Kirkus Reviews for accounting for all the uh, newspaper sources. The Hornbaker book actually did that much better. But the trip book uh, did uh, synthesize. So if you're going to read a book uh, to cap- capture the uh, why do we like to write a scholarly book about Cobb, uh, the trip book is the one, and it is the only one. Yeah, I'm looking at all the other earlier books. So that's the first scholarly book on uh, um, Mr. Cobb. Now, Benjamin Rader, who's well-known to to scholars, uh, has been uh, especially interested in Cobb. He's written articles over the years. He actually wrote an article that had a manhood angle to it uh, that that may have been a basis for Professor Tripp's book. Uh, So uh, if I'm thinking of whoever would now try to write a Cobb book, uh, Mr. Rader, I think Professor Rader is about 80 years old, so he could conceivably come along and try to uh, Combine it all, but otherwise, I don't see anybody who uh, would come into this from Professor Tripp's angle of just eating up the, the scholarly aspect. The southern, being a southerner, is considered a big deal. There's a journal of southern history. I don't really think there's a journal of midwestern history or anything, anywhere near the uh, cloud or the uh, the umph, because everyone knows southerners are their own breed. There's a whole culture that goes with it. You know, Midwest, it's much more, uh, you know, touch and go. So, yeah, so Mr. Tripp, Professor Tripp did a great job of uh, of of, of an ac- presenting an academic book, uh, but he did a, a poor job of uh, keeping to the facts. And in that sense, he is a mirror or a uh, – he's like Professor Tripp, like Professor I'm, – I'm sorry. In that respect, he's like uh, Charles Learson. And again, leaving Tim Hornbaker out on his own to uh, be the only Cobb author of the three who is an understated, hedging to a fault, accurate accuracy being number one author, even if it's dry as dust.
0: And you also um, mentioned quite frequently in your book about the books by Al Stump and by Charles Alexander. Go ahead and briefly talk about you know their contributions to the Cobb legacy.
1: So uh, so uh, Charles Alexander comes along in 1984. Uh, the uh, chronology before that was uh, 56, John McCollum, who had uh, gotten some, uh, I guess, um, cooperation from Cobb, some anecdotal stories, uh, but he didn't really put that in the 56 book, a very dry book. Uh, 61 is Cobb and Stump, also a very dry book, which we haven't talked about, even though Stump ends up um, basically uh, ruining Cobb's legacy to a degree after that. The uh Cobbstone book is uh has really has no uh, i think, i think mr Larson wrote, wrote in his book no uh nothing, nothing earth shattering uh in it so the book itself wasn't a problem John McCollum in seventy five comes out with his, another book on Cobb has some good uh, meaty stories uh, a few uh uh you know more meaty stories uh and actually uh, McCollum told a story which i haven't I mentioned uh, um, that uh he threw that uh, he, told, he told a story to the Seattle Times, uh, Dan, Dan, Dave or Dan Duncan, who's I think now 100 years old, back in 1971, that he was in Cobb's presence when uh, Cobb was throwing knives uh, either at him or around him. Uh, it sounded like at him or uh, you know just whatever. So uh, we got a little bit, um, whether Cobb uh, was kind of a, uh, you know, a bit of a character because Alice Dunn captured some of that character and uh, McCollum had caught some of that uh, in, in a 71 article. It wasn't clear, but... Uh, so, um, so, Alexander comes along uh, in 84 uh, in light of the, the Alstom 61 article, which is, you know, over-the-top negative, the John McCollum book, which had a bit of an edgy to it, uh, but Alexander really kept it under wraps. Um, Mr. Learson says it was a kind of a morose book, um, you know, that didn't really present Cobb in his full, um, positively a negative light. Mm, it's, a, it's a tough criticism because the lyrics of the book is so pro Cobb that it's like, uh, it's fantasy also. Uh, it's actually more fantastic in a way than the Charles Alexander book. The Alexander book just made really two major errors um, and it, did, it was very faithful actually to, to agree to his post-career. It actually was the best, it is the best Cobb book except for mine on the post-career um, in many respects, although Richard Bach did capture parts. But the Alexander book is very important uh, for me. I liked it because he... Um, I uh, mentioned this guy, George Maines, who uh, was really an interesting person in, in Cobb's life. He's, he's been overlooked by all the other authors. I go through the whole list there. Alexander mentioned him because uh, Maines was a, a publicist by nature uh, who grew up or was in Detroit, helped Cobb a little bit um, uh, informally with publicity stuff in the 1920s, including the banquet. There's a big banquet in, in, uh, in Detroit, and Maines helped organize it. And um, Mames ends up being an um, a eyewitness to Cobb's last years. And uh, I found some writings by him. And where did I find them? Oh, his personal letters. Uh, the Hall of Fame now. Mr. Alexander cited them partially, but I got some really good stuff about how you talk to Cobb without uh, – if you have bad news to him, uh, the way to do that. So um, uh, the, the Alexander book covered the post-career better than everyone else. So it's a fuller book, uh, McCollum, Stump, uh, Bach. It has its uh, pluses and minuses, uh, but Alexander did uh, seem to be faithfully uh, uh, tracking Cobb throughout his life. And this is also before the Internet, and Richard Bach's book is in 1984. Alexander's 84. So they both were working at a disadvantage compared to today. Um, So they each... uh, have, I'm throwing in Richard Bach here because it's hard actually to separate them, because Richard Bach was actually the Charles Learson before Charles Learson, but you would never know that from the Charles Learson book. Um, Richard Bach came out with his 1984 book, Around the Time of the Al Stump, uh, Over the Top Negative book, and the movie Cobb. So Richard Bach is coming out and uh, pointing out for the AP uh, that the uh, things were over the top, this and that. So um, Mr. Alexander did his bit to temper Al Stump, Uh, but not uh, enough. And Richard Bach did his part to temper Al Stump and the movie Cobb, uh, but not enough because Richard Bach actually bought into some of the stuff on racism, um, calling him a a bigot. Now, I uh, end up in my book uh, basically challenging the the notion that uh, he was a bigot. However, I praise Richard Bach for capturing the essence of Cobb as socially racist, uh, about socializing, not socializing with blacks. Uh, Richard Bach spoke to the son of a Reno, Nevada sports writer, uh, whose names were both Ty Cobb. One of them is still living the, the son, who, by the way, worked on the uh, National Security Council staff of the Reagan White House. Uh, so Bach actually caught uh, the essence of Cobb as a social racist that Mr. Lirson uh, didn't catch. Mr. Hornbaker kept the door open, uh, Professor Tripp kept the door open, but I'm the one who has the uh, meat on the bones with this uh, uh, Bill Cunningham, uh, years later, retrospective of 1945 or 46. Um, so Alexander and Bach really go together, although I really haven't thought of them previously. Um, and I, I should just mention some the other two authors that are left here. Dan Holmes in 2004. Don Rose in 2008. Dan Holmes was a um, webmaster of the Hall of Fame. He wrote a very short book for Greenwood Press. Uh, no no uh, excitement to it as far as um, you know revelations, but just a like a workmanlike book that just you know is a short book for anyone who wants to read 130 pages on Cobb, nothing more. Now Don Rose in 2008 is based in Augusta, Georgia. He's a uh, to this day he's a, I guess a country music or an entertainment writer for the Augusta Chronicle in Georgia, which is Cobb's main city starting in, I think, uh, 1908 when he's married, or it's a city where he starts living in more of uh, formally I think he formally moved there in 1912. Don Rhodes ends up focusing on the Georgia connection of Cobb and on the Augusta Chronicle coverage of Cobb, a lot of uh, ephemera. However, Mr. Rhodes is the indispensable Cobb author. In many ways, if he said to me, which of these authors of Howard Rosenberg was coming around in 2018 with uh, no other Cobb author in his uh, background to go with. Gee, I might go with Don Rhodes because Don Rhodes had interviewed Cobb's daughter, uh, Beverly or Shirley, uh, 20 or 30 years earlier. And he didn't print it until the 2004 book and found stories about Cobb um, hitting members of the family, about uh, Cobb being a Jekyll and Hyde figure. So even though Mr. Learson is coming out with the pro-Cobb stuff, he doesn't cite at all Don Rhodes's material, even though uh, Don Rhodes told me, and it's, I think it's alluded to in the Lyrson book, that Mr. Lyrson did visit Mr. Rhodes. So for some reason, Mr. Lyrson Leer, did decide not to quote Mr. Rhodes. Mr. Hornbaker uh, cites material from Mr. Rhodes's book, uh, although not by name, but it's clearly from Mr. Rhodes' book. Uh, I think on some of that effect to the hitting people or, um, yeah, the hitting people, yeah, hitting members of the family. So it's very interesting. So Mr. Rhodes is an interesting person. He's uh, got the really the bad stuff about uh, hitting. Um, Joe DiMaggio had had claimed, and there's a Joe DiMaggio book that came out uh, last year by Rock Positano. the uh, podiatrist for um, Mr. Uh, DiMaggio, had had been hanging out at his dinner table in the 1990s. Uh, right. was, dinner with DiMaggio. Yeah, <laughs> dinner with DiMaggio. So uh, no one really touched about this. And uh, yeah, out of the blue, I'm looking at the DiMaggio book and I'm like, oh, wow. So DiMaggio, Positano, Dr. Positano was saying that DiMaggio is telling him that uh, Cobb would hit members of the family. So where would we have any, uh, uh, I guess, confirmation for that? It would be from Don Rose's interview with uh, Beverly or Shirley, a daughter, not strange at all, daughter of uh, Ty Cobb. So, um, yes. So, so there's negativity about Cobb that Mr. Learson just chose to skip over. Mr. Hornbaker chose to mention and, gee, I mentioned it because Mr. Rhodes mentioned it and Mr. Rhodes is a credible source. So you can really see that um, like the Cobb, uh, you call it the discography, or you would call it the anthology, or there's a famous, what's the word for um, when books come out in a certain order, you keep track of the books, Histori- historiography. But the historiography of Cobb is a minefield all over the place. Some authors are creating um, they're refuting fiction, they're creating fiction, uh, and they're coming along as late as 2008 with Don Rhodes with a primary source that blows the other ones away in its significance. Um, I should also mention, we should also mention Herschel Cobb, uh, a grandson of Ty Cobb who comes out in two th- 2013 with a retrospective about growing up in the 1950s in California where Cobb had moved, and your know, interactions with um, his grandfather, mainly positive, Uh, Some negative Al Stump stuff, uh, which uh, I think Mr. Learson mentioned, Mr. Professor uh, Tripp mentioned, I briefly alluded to not mentioning it because uh, it's beyond my, um, you know, marching orders or my focus, but I I acknowledge that Professor Tripp had mentioned it. Um, So, yeah, um, Herschel Cobb's book uh, was a testament to what Cobb was like in person. Uh, but really had not caught the uh, negativity in the 1950s. Uh, Another thing that I should mention, Mr. Hornbaker did very, very well, which uh, everyone has overlooked. Mr. Hornbaker uh, went into uh, court records in California. Uh, It wasn't uh, Cobb's uh, um, divorce proceedings. Uh, Cobb was divorced from his first wife in 1947, his second wife in 1956. But Mr. Hornbaker ends up going to a court case involving a... um, a guy named Elmer Filts or Filtz, Fitz, uh, who's like a former semi-pro player, who accuses Cobb of uh, breaking his jaw or something in a, a fight in a cab. So Mr. Hornbaker goes to uh, the California court and ends up getting records for the case. And it turns out that thrown into the case by Mr. Mr. Elmer Filts or Fitz is um, the second a, a so-called what is it called a um, some kind of affidavit is a fantasy name for it. Uh, from that um, divorce proceedings as attesting to some uh, physical hitting uh Cobb being uh rude or actually misbehaving in a restaurant uh, in the presence of Jack McDonald, who is a uh, the sports editor of the San Francisco call bulletin who is favorably quoted in the Charles Wilson book for being a uh, eyewitness to the um i guess uh Benefits, benefits of Cobb or the uh, magna, na, mag, magnanimity of Cobb uh in his Cobb, in cobb's presence as a house guest testing to this or that well uh Hornbaker didn't cite in his book, but I ended up uh citing the um uh, affidavit of the um second wife saying that in uh, mr mcdonald 's presence uh, mr mcwife's mr mcdonald's wife's presence and uh her presence that he was uh, behaving, uh, I guess, in a disgusting manner at the Poodle Dog Restaurant in San Francisco in 1956. So here you have a case where Mr. Larson's coming out in favor of Cobb uh, based on Jack McDonald being an eyewitness. And I have, thanks to Mr. Hornbaker, tracking down, I don't know if I would have gone for that court record. So the Hornbaker book, I say is almost as significant, or I pretty much say is as significant, because it captures that document, um that captures so much about Cobb that's first-person source. You might say that the second wife had an axe to grind. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's so, but it just goes to show you that when you have a big historical subject, sometimes one author isn't enough. And we could talk about the Babe Ruth new book since it's a perfect – I think it's a perfect segue because a lot of your listeners probably are aware or going to be aware of a new book that's just come out by Jane Levy. Uh, the Big Fellow is the short title yeah, of
0: it. The Big Fellow.
1: It's a Harper Collins book. It covers aspects of of Ruth that really no, author, no other Cobb- I'm sorry, I keep saying Cobb. No, no other Ruth author had covered. And in a way, it's it's a similar race, similar to my book because our books are almost exercises in trying to maximize not overlapping with prior authors on our subject. Um, so I think readers, might find, listeners might find this interesting because most of your listeners are not going li- to read my book or her book, but it's interesting about how authors get, go about Telling about their book, and you rarely will find this type of detail in a book review. Well, you know. Um, so
0: this, I was going to say that one reviewer compared you to a, a completist when it comes to researching Cobb, and would you agree with that assessment? And if so, um, what makes an author researching a subject for a biography such as you, what you did a, a completist? Did you like that characterization?
1: Yes, yes, it has. Uh, it's it has. It's an admirable point. It's not meant as a, as something to invite readers to read the book who are not gung-ho about the subject, a completist will tend to, to a fault, hit all the nooks and crannies. And since my marching order was to be as unreplicative of prior Cobb authors as could possibly be, now I do, of course, weigh in on the prior Cobb authors when there's something to weigh in on, when there's dispute, when there's something to point out that somebody got that's really important, like uh, this case of what Hornbaker found, although he didn't really drive it home at all. He just said he, he cited what he had found, this affidavit. Um, so I'm a completist in my book in the, in the uh, post-career period. I have 300 pages in my book, I think, on that period, versus maybe 100 earlier on or 150 earlier on. But even the 150 earlier on jumps into the post-career. So I'm really not doing much to the uh, earlier part of his career. But I think other co-authors have amply covered that. Now, amazingly, Miss Levy comes along. And uh, by the way, we're both from the same hometown, Roslyn, New York, uh, which is interesting. So she's coming around and saying she's not going to be repetitive. And she ends up uh, finding stuff about the childhood that even Lee Montville, who wrote The Big Bam, it's the most readable uh, Ruth book, uh, 2006 book. It it, it blows away all the other Ruth books for a cradle to grave book. As far as a cradle to grave book, Uh, Robert Kramer's The Babe Legend comes to life is still the best Babe Ruth book overall because it had reminiscences from living former teammates of Babe Ruth. You cannot top that. Nothing can top it. And it's interesting because Jane Levy compared her book to her, to Bob Lee, to Bob creamer in one of the podcasts I listened to. Um, uh, and yeah, she covered stuff that he didn't cover, but nobody can touch account to Robert creamer. I argue in my book, that I, I do touch a candle, or I argue Michael listening to that I do touch a candle to Kramer in a sense, and listeners might be shocked because my book is really not readable compared to Robert Kramer, that uh, you have all this back and forth, by play, back and forth in the post, in the retirement years between sports writers, former players, uh, players with, uh, who are friends of his, players who are opposed to him, of Axe to Grind, um, and then these private letters of Cobb. You have all these elements coming together like a big brew, and how would you assess Cobb's legacy in his, his, as, of, as of his retirement pre-Al Stump. And you have a minefield or a, um, a a gold rush and minefields. But I was able to present all that stuff, you know, the good, bad, the ugly, which nobody had touched pretty much. It's amazing, 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 but it's a lot of it is testament to the benefit of full-text databases. Miss Levy gives a lot of credit to full-text databases right. for uncovering the youth of babe Ruth no one else had really covered it or captured it she found stuff related to the father of babe Ruth uh, she had led her to court records uh, the the divorce records just is a so this is really a testament some authors get credit more than others for doing uh thorough research like definitive research and I've done definitive research for 32 years she did f- definitive research I'll say for uh the the birth year up through we'll say nineteen fourteen when he's done with the um, at the, uh, the Catholic school. So she did the first 14 years. She'll be the definitive biographer of the 14 years. I'll be the definitive biographer of 32 years. Uh, you wouldn't know about my right. 32 years because my book is barely mentioned, but yeah, 32 years out of 70 years is 40%. 14 years out of 48 years is, I guess it is uh, 30% or thirty about 25%. 30, 30, about 30%. So yeah, so we're both, we each caught a, 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 a niche of our subjects that, None of the other authors had captured, thanks to full-text databases, and frankly, in my case, thanks to uh, the oversights of Learson and Hornbaker, although Hornbaker did account for many primary sources in the post-1928 uh, period. Um, now, Miss Levy's book otherwise has some interesting uh, redemptive values that it does present uh, Mr. Ruth in the age of celebrity. She captures the rise of celebrity um, and shows uh, his... Um, um, I guess his publicist, Christy Walsh uh, as weighing in all over the place. Uh, However, uh, you really don't get the voice of uh, Mr. Ruth that much because Mr. Ruth really is not saying much in interviews. It's very, um, it's unclear also whether the quotes are being fed from Christy, Christy Walsh anyway. Um, He really doesn't write private letters or that have been preserved. So you're really getting a very superficial view of Ruth and Miss Levy had a much harder time than I did in trying to capture the true Ruth because she's working with not many quotes. She's working with quips. She's working mm-hmm. with a ghost writer. Um, and she's really not doing definitive research on uh, Mr. Ruth uh, In after the 1914 period. Uh, she's capturing parts of it. Uh, the Christy Walsh stuff is really important in the Christy Walsh aspect of Ruth, which none of the authors really captured. Uh, and she's capturing some of the personality. She's, she's, she's a personal writer. She had done the Mickey Mantle book. Uh, that's uh, a very, um, it's a very, um, you would say, um, a partial view of Mantle. It's actually a a dark view of Mantle. Reviewers have said, uh, overemphasizing the drinking. Uh, she did a very good book on, of Koufax, Sandy Koufax, which is much less, uh, you really can't find anything wrong with the book. It's, it's considered a, a, a masterful book. You know, one of those great books of all time. She, uh, Koufax a recluse. She captured the life. She captured everything. So she's very interested in personality. And it's funny because, yeah, she's capturing Ruth to the best that she can, although reviewers, I think, have said that even there, you still are coming up short. And I think they alluded to the fact, without saying so, that Ruth just really didn't pour himself out. And Cobb does pour himself out because he likes writing like a lawyer, defending himself against all comers. And you have him taking flack you know, from reporters, from the players. Uh, And then, yeah. Um, So it's an interesting um, confluence to have Ruth and Cobb in the same year. Both of these books are long books. Hers is like 620 pages, although I like to say that her book has more spacing uh, because that's the way to make books more readable. You make more space between lines. My book is 560 pages, many more images, but I'm packing so many words per line or, you know, the typeface and, Sentences that I think I, I, I clearly have more lines of text. So these are books that anybody who really wants to analyze the state of baseball biography really need go no further because it goes into the heart of what you can do at this day and age in the year 2018 when you have uh, all these books by all the about all these famous baseball players that have been written about the, the top of the line. What happens? When another author comes along, Mr. Learson tried to rewrite Cobb, except that he k- skipped the post career and created a fictitious straw man and Stump ruining the legacy. You know, some of the stuff was ruined, but not anywhere near that he claimed was ruined. Uh, Mr. Hornbaker did a, a cradle of gray book, but it was relatively dry. It's very It was very hard maybe to um, upstage the other authors. Um, but Miss Levy and I pretty much uh, did niche books. And yet hers is getting a huge amount of coverage as being, uh, the, uh, I think, Ron Kaplan, who's a very well-known reviewer, said this is uh, a masterful book, gave it five stars. Right. And, yeah, for what it does, it's masterful. But in the scheme of things, is it really anywhere near uh, the, the Big Bam as a readable one-volume book or the Robert Kramer book for being just easily possibly the, the number one baseball book of all time if you ever have to read one because you got all these former players talking about Ruth. And if you like years later stories, I happen to not like them. Uh, I've done 19th century baseball. I purposely tried to draw the line. on Cap Anson on years later stories or decades later stories. Um, but the Ruth book is just so entertaining. Um, it's just, you know, and, and there was never one done with Cobb. So I like to say that the closest you can come with Cobb. So, which is more interesting, a, a Babe Ruth book that also emphasizes a 1927 uh, tour, a barnstorming tour at the start of, I think, I'll say 15 of the 18 chapters. Uh, it, it, you know, she's a very good writer, much better writer than I am, no doubt about it. But she jumps around from this tour into back back pages of uh, Ruth's uh, early years. She's bringing the story up to date every um, with a subhead under a Roman numeral. I haven't found a reviewer really to challenge that, but I it was so obvious. I think there's a few on Goodreads or on Amazon who really just you know wondering what's up. So I, I think there's a disconnect. Between um, reviewers who, you know, it takes a lot more energy to take on a book in a negative way than to just go along with it. And she has the record. And there's no doubt about it, it's a readable book. It's much more readable than mine. But I'm saying, you know, gee, if you really want to learn about a lot about baseball and get much more of a civics lesson, you know, her book is uh, going to tell you all about the rise of celebrity in 1920s. If you want to know about the mm-hmm. rise of celebrity in 1920s, I don't know how many 20 year olds really will care about the rise of celebrity in 1920s except that they do Twitter and they like to be wondering about it. But if you'd like to see something about how mainstream nonfiction books nowadays, there could be a book that could be so over the top in being revisionist and take readers for a ride and pretty much get away with it because there really hasn't been any uh, mainstream review. Only the uh, scholar reviews in Sport History Review uh, really have uh, touched on, uh, you know, in in any uh, really strong way. There have been a smattering of reviews, Roger Abrams in the New York Journal of Books. Um, But yeah, it's an interesting um, sign of book reviewing. Uh, So so, so I really recommend my book to anyone who really wants to understand a civics lesson in the age of Trump where we're tribal that things can either be one way or the other. So Mr. Learson's book is both a Jekyll and the Hyde. It's got uh, redeeming values all over the place, but it also has the runaway train quality and to capture the runaway train quality, you really almost need uh, someone to actually do a, a line edit of it and you liked you, you actually reviewed my book on a uh, sport history website you said I bring a line editors view and a, nobody who reviews a book can do that unless they um, you got to spend months or years of their life and gee you know I just did that and I really haven't gotten much covered and I think part of the problem is that you have these uh, reviewers for or you know sports uh, news outlets that bought into the Charles Wilson book. They see the author being a Simon Schuster author. They see tile books, a self publisher and uh, they don't want to, for whatever reason they want, they have their pride. They don't want to. uh, And I I say a civics lesson should override that. You know, your own personal pride journalists should not be in the personal pride business, but I really think that it's just ridiculous. This is like, uh, this is a sign of, and and your readers might uh, appreciate this point. Because you rarely see a stronger criticism of the book review industry. You rarely see people who are analyzing the book review industry for what it is. It's it can be a pushover for mainstream books, for the readability of books over other factors. It can you know uh, you know turn the other cheek at flaws and especially on the uh, the notion of this jumping around style of the uh, Miss Levy's book. I don't know. I, I just I don't I, I can't I, I'm not I'm shocked that nobody has has mentioned it. You know.
0: Talking about books and everything, do you have another project in mind for the future?
1: Well, I uh, don't, but um, I find it interesting to be analyzing from a critical point of view earlier books. And you know, Bob can be a testament uh, to my writing style uh, of my earlier books being relatively uh, dry, although the the, the the prose that I cite is very, very interesting. So you're talking about nice entry, colorful quotes. Um, I tried to basically string together a lot of stuff in most of my books. I had some analytical sections, but a lot of it was stringing together. What I thought were really interesting, uh, quotes, letting the quotes stand for themselves. Um, I could never really do that with the 20th century, I think, because the 20th century based on writing, as I, I, I've been saying is it can't really hold a candle to 19th century writing. It's just too lawyerly. It's just too dry or it's got this literate, you know, the, the early writers tried to be in the 1920s. They tried to literate with, you know, It was corny. Um, So I think if I, and I uh, can admit to it, that I have no true writing style. I am not a fan of fiction per se, and I think that's really the best uh, writers of anything. You want to find people who know how to write fiction. Uh, So I will uh, admit right here and there, I am a a below average writer, although I am clearly above average researcher. Um, But I think analyzing book authors for the way they... um, the biases could be an angle, although it would take a lot to find somebody who was to the extreme of Mr. Learson in coming along and just trying to throw out the book uh, on earlier authors. Um, so it would take a lot though, because I, I do like baseball history. I'm not sure how passionate I am about uh, various subjects. You know, that's the thing about uh, history that I think a lot of your uh, listeners, they're passionate probably about uh, being fans of the sport, things that they grew up with. It's much more of an acquired taste to go back in time to things you didn't grow up with. My, my dad was a really uh, very uh, learned person. He loved um, history, but he really didn't read history books. And he really, was, he really wasn't interested in baseball before his time. He really couldn't get him interested in anything before 1928. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, no matter how interesting it may be in a book, he's not going to read it. Um, he, 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 I think he, he watched the Ken Burns series. But um, it's interesting. This is part of our modern-day society that people are much more into things that they personally viscerally experience and authors have a tough time, you know, uh, but Robert Kramer titled his book, babe, the legend comes to life. And gee, yeah, I'm saying he brought them to life. You may argue that whether decades later stories are valid in many cases, but it's hard for authors to bring people to life uh, years later, decades later. um, Especially on, I say on 20th century baseball writing, I say good luck finding colorful stuff uh, now, I do quote a lot uh, for the record because I am a author of record. I think uh, that's I think that whatever you quoted me earlier as the um, moniker that was given to me, I tend to like to quote things. Uh, and by the way, Mr. Hornbaker likes to paraphrase things. So it's interesting. Mr. Hornbaker has a very good style for paraphrasing. If you don't like uh, quotation marks galore, quotations galore, Mr. Hornbaker has a, a relatively dry style, but you're getting a very good masterful hedging. Uh, whereas Mr. Learson wrote like the entertainer, kind of trying to be like, uh, in a way, uh, Robert Kramer, but coming nowhere near it, uh, because he's really not working with the breadth of true primary sources that I worked at with in the post career. That's really the heart of Cobb. It's not, it's not his playing career. You know, you might think that, gee, a fan of today loves will love Cobb because he did all these feats on the field. that want to read about how, uh, you know, daring a player he was. I actually say the real story may be the post-career because Mr. Larson himself is saying that the real story of Cobb is a redemption of Cobb based on Al Stubb ruining his legacy. And that's like throwing up, up the baton, you know, throwing up the chalice. or oh, what's the, what's the word? Um, you know, what's the word? I keep missing all the uh, metaphors throwing up the, whatever it is um, that I, I, I'm running with it. I'm saying that uh, that's really where all the interesting stuff is. It's the back, the back and forth. It's Robert Kramer, like back and forth that Ruth was like this, no, one, one cop we well, will say this, one will say that, one will say, Waypoint Waypoint right. was one, I guess. But they went back and forth. So I, there's really nothing in these Cobb books, McCollum, Stump, Alexander, Back, Holmes, Rhodes, Learson, Hornbaker, that have the back and forth. I got you know the, the sports writers back and forth with, um, you know, I'm defending him, criticizing him, the former players, uh, and then Cobb weighing in on these letters hundreds of letters, uh, although I'm not really weighing in uh, more than um, narrowly and most of them to his uh, stockbroker, Joe Halk. Um, But it's interesting that uh, books have features that on their face can look enticing based on readability, based on getting huge play in book reviews. And other books, they can disappear. They can be under the radar and you'll rarely hear about them. And I can basically say I have one star review on Amazon.com by a close ally of Mister. Learson's book, William W. William R. Ron Cobb. Ron is the um, name of his his nickname. He's an author of a uh, well received and a very good article about Al Stump that made uh, poked holes into uh, his uh, credibility. It was done in 2010. It's an award winning article, uh, but. Uh, uh, sorry to say, Mr. Cobb has maligned my book by making stuff up at my book. Uh, he basically looked like he read through the book relatively fast. He mixed up my 1911 story, which was a day uh, after the fact story with a 19, the 1945 story, which was a, uh, years, a few years later, um, years, I say a years, um, you know, um, years after story. So he called the book, the 1911 story hearsay, which was re- really days later. And, uh, 1945 story, he dismissed by, um, including using an ellipsis to take out the central argument that the Cobb the cob had uh, spoken out against integration uh, a few years earlier. Um, so, any, so a place like Amazon.com, you know, the, anything could be on Amazon.com. And just because something is in a book doesn't mean it's true. And I was listening to Rush Limbaugh. I listened to uh, liberals. I listened to, listened to Morning Journal, and I listened to Rush Limbaugh. Uh, Rush Limbaugh two days ago basically says that you know, people think that just because it's in a book, it's true. And uh, I'm sure that most of your readers don't have any clue that if you read a magazine article, odds are the magazine article is much more likely to be true than the book article for the simple reason that magazine articles tend to be uh, fact-checked, uh, books tend not to be. So people um, have uh, a sense uh, – they should have more of a sense of what is true, what's not. And I think my, my book goes to the heart of uh, – you know in the Trump era of showing that things can have redeeming values. They can also be runaway trains and that you really have to weigh a lot – and that you can also sacrifice readability. Uh, you know, obviously, if right. you want a good read, Levy's book is, is a better read. Although you might get wonder about the, how much you really want to read about the rise of publicity in the 1920s versus reading about. Uh, you know, so it's it's really interesting what people consider as reviewers. How they will bend over backwards to say that oh, there is redeeming value. Know about it. You know, it's giving life to a subject that. Uh, had no life previously it had been maybe uh you know glossed over because the Christie Walsh angle had not been emphasized. So it does justice. But in the scheme of things, is it really interesting or is it just a well done, workmanlike thing? Um so th- it's really interesting that um in the larger scheme of things, I think her book uh is somewhat flat, except that the uh the fixing up his youth years is extremely important. It makes her book the go-to book on Babe Ruth's youth, period, and the story. Okay,
0: well, it's been very interesting. And we've been speaking with Howard Rosenberg, author of Tide Cobb Unleashed, the definitive counterbiography of the Chastened Racist. Howard, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. And you've been listening to the New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo. And thank you again for listening. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters.